The only name that saves um, is so appropriate for us as we uh, kind of review uh, and remember uh, the story of Esther as we uh, continue this, our third week, through our series in this book about uh, God delivering His people, God saving and rescuing. In fact, we've titled the whole series um, The Idea of Seeking Relief and Knowing the Relief that God Brings to a Life uh, When uh, He Comes In. Uh, you'll remember if you've read the book, if you haven't had a chance to read it or maybe didn't know today that we're going through this book, I encourage you, it's only ten chapters, but it's an amazing story uh, found in the Old Testament. And uh, you'll remember that it's set about 2,500 years ago in the uh, old Persian Empire. King Xerxes has inherited a, a tremendous kingdom, the largest known up until that point that uh, Cyrus and Darius, kings before him, had accumulated and expanded the kingdom and it stretched all the way from India to Ethiopia. Xerxes is king and he became unhappy with his queen Vashti and he uh, sets her aside and um, he is encouraged to find a new queen and uh, he picks, a, unbeknownst to him, a Jewish woman named Hadassah in Hebrew, Esther. Uh, is uh, the name that we know her by. And uh, she becomes queen, yet she doesn't reveal her identity. And uh, the, the character that we're going to focus our uh, story on today and our attention is the one of Haman. So there's three main characters. You guys are good. There's three main characters in the story. There's Esther the queen and her uncle Mordecai. And then the villain of the story is Haman. And what happens with Haman is that he, uh, he is so enraged at, uh, at what Mordecai does, and we're going to talk about that today, that he sets in motion a plan. He convinces the king to put together a plan to exterminate the Jews throughout the entire Persian um, world. And uh, through a series of twists and turns, some of them we're going to see today, is that God reverses the anticipated uh, plot line of the story. And something completely different happens. And at the very end of the story, we know that the, the Hebrew festival of Purim, uh, they, they come back every year when uh, Hebrew and Jewish people celebrate their festival of Purim. It's the book of Esther that they read to remind them of when God stepped in and gave them relief from their enemies. And we know now on this side of history, looking back through the lens of Jesus, that it is Jesus who saves and is the one who brings our deliverance and our ultimate relief. This morning, as we think, I want to ask you a question, and it's this. Have you ever struggled with seeking the applause of other people? Has that ever been a factor in your life? I remember in junior high and high school, how often I would seek out the the adulation of my peers. I wanted them to like me and, and to be accepted into their life. And I wanted to be applauded by them. I wanted the teachers to applaud me for my efforts in school, my coaches for my efforts in sports. And I was really hungry that people might think well of me. And I know in any phase of life that can be the case, whether we're uh, a 40-year-old adult in our workplace, we can still arrange our life for the applause of a, a boss. Marriages can get so out of kilter that all we do is arrange our whole life so that our husband or our wife might applaud us 
and our efforts, so often it's easy to fall into letting that dominate our life. So hungering for the applause of other people that we can easily forget what God really desires is for us to live our life for His applause. And that the choices that we make and the relationships that we engage in and the life that we live is live for His glory and so that He might applaud us at the end of our life because we have given our life fully and completely to Him. We're going to see today in the person of Haman, a man who hungered for other people's praise. You see, when Haman entered a room, everybody in the room would stand. Everybody would say, Haman! We're glad you're here, Haman. They would even bow down in honor and recognition of who Haman was. Haman had been promoted to the highest place underneath the king of any high above all the other nobles and the important people in the city of Susa, the citadel, the fortress city where King Xerxes held his court. And everybody, I mean, he could walk into a room or walk down the street and he could look around and people would humbly... He, I love watching old medieval style movies and when the important people arrive, what do the, the less important people do? It's always a step back. I've studied this. It's a step back. It's a bend at the waist and it's usually a sweeping of the hands. So it was something like that. They were honoring Haman. But you know the only person Haman could see after a while was the only person who wouldn't honor him in that way. And that was Mordecai. In fact, Haman was filled with rage every time he would walk into a room, everybody stands up and applauds, Haman's in the house! Except for Mordecai. And he would, his teeth would grit, and his jaws would clench, and his fists would double up. And he said, this is unacceptable. I'm not going to stand for this. You see, Haman is described as a, an, a Gagite. And... Uh, the Agagites are traced to the ancient enemy of Israel. In fact, they are the first people, when the Jewish people are released out of captivity in Egypt, they're the first people to encounter them on their road to freedom to fight against them. They are encountered again when King Saul takes the throne and he is told to engage them in battle. And now we see him, uh, Haman, as a descendant of that tribe. And really, he is described in this book as the enemy of the Jews. He is, he is for us, we are to think about, in some ways, everything that sets itself up to oppose the will and the work of God in the world. We are to think of Haman as everything that might oppose God's desire for a church community. We might think about Haman today as everything that would set itself in your life to oppose the work of God in your life. What is God's end desire for you? Is that you would learn to love Him and to praise Him forever. And in that process, He is shaping you more and more into the likeness of Jesus Himself. That is the, the, the journey of spiritual growth. And Haman, with everything he had... The only thing he could fix his life on was the fact that Mordecai would not respond in the way that Haman thought he deserved to be treated. Something was poisoning Haman's soul. Something was deep, fixated in himself, fixated on himself with this 
unusual sense of self-centered pride. It was just crazy. Let's read together chapter 3 of the book of Esther to get a flavor of Haman. After these events, so Esther, as the story goes, Esther is now queen. Mordecai, her uncle who raised her, has just uncovered an assassination attempt on Xerxes' life, and he's reported it. He's blown the whistle. Xerxes is safe. So right on the heels of that, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Chapter 3, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. Can you hear him? Haman, he's in the house. For the king had commanded this concerning Haman, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Can you see Haman just blowing his top? And his lid is flying off somewhere. Okay, you got to picture it. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them that he was a Jew. We're getting a sense now, a little bit of peak perhaps, that Mordecai is standing, uh, standing up and not bowing down in front of Haman because of his identity as a Jewish man. And that he knew as a Jewish man that no one would be honored higher and above God alone. And so he refused to respond in this way. Verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. He was enraged. He's mad. This is not... I don't care if there's a hundred people or a thousand people. This one man is not. That makes that ticks me off. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast pure, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, Hey king, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different than those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. You think Haman was serious? When you put money behind an idea, you know you're serious. Haman was going to front the cash and get this job done. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And he said, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. There are some signs of Haman's fixation with himself. There are a few signs that help us, I think, if we allow them to run rampant in our own life, they go unchecked, then it begins to undermine the activity of God, either in your life personally or in the life of a church or in a world generally. There are some things and some signs that if they go unchecked, uh, they will undermine the work of God. Some are right on the surface and we see them very clearly. Others go a little deeper and they're under the surface 
and we have to dig a little bit to see them. One, one of the signs that are right on the surface is, oh, I want to read one more passage, can we? Chapter 5, this is really important. Chapter 5, verse 9. The signs will have to wait. Chapter 5, verse 9. Haman, so Queen Esther had invited both Xerxes the king and Haman, only the two of them, to a particular feast. Esther is beginning to work out her plan to help um, highlight to the king why the king should uh, change course and protect the Jews rather than um, do harm to them. So this, this has happened. And Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits because he'd just come from this, this meal. But when he saw that Mordecai, he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage. There we are again. He was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. Verse 12. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to, the, to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high. That's seven and a half stories tall. That helps me. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. There's some signs right on the surface that indicate to us uh, these these factors of self-fixation for Haman that if going unchecked, they certainly will undermine the work of God. One is his entourage, right? It's the people that Haman has gathered around him. He's gathered around him people that just only are interested in reinforcing the misguided ideas and the misguided concepts that Haman has about himself, about the Jewish people, and about what the king should do in response to what Haman views as right. So he says, this is the idea I have. It doesn't matter how wild or harebrained or crazy it is. And the people around him are like, yeah, yeah. You see, for us, it's so important to put people around us that, that are diverse in many ways, that help encourage us in our faith, that will help us not continue on in paths of destruction or, or ill health spiritually, or any other way. We need people who will speak truth to us. And if we allow the entourage that we place around our life and the people that we most often spend time with, if we allow them to not speak truth and to help hold us accountable at times, then we are all the worse for it. You know, you and I really are products of the people that we spend the most time with because we cannot help but to catch the ideas and the attitudes and the impressions of other people around whom we spend the most amount of our time. We just can't help it. We're shaped by other people. And if you spend time or a lot of your time with people who are negative or backbiting or undermining or conniving or uh, practicing habits that are unhealthy... It won't be long before those things become characteristics of your life as well. It is so hard 
to stand strong and pure in the midst of a company that you continually choose to surround yourself with. But if you surround yourself with people who are joy-loving and God-honoring and those who seek the best in others and set aside selfish ambition so that they might encourage your life, then guess what? Odds are that you're going to begin to exhibit those types of attitudes and behaviors as well. We really are. We really are very similar to the company that we keep. One of the signs for Haman of his self-fixation was the entourage that just loved to, to pour accolades over his misguided ideas. Another thing that we see is his boasting. Remember, he gathered his friends and his wife together. He said, I'm so rich, richer than all others. I have risen so high in my profession. It's amazing. The king has honored me above everybody else. <laughs> it's just, you can just see the, the tinkle in his teeth, and uh, it's amazing. He, uh, we know that, that this idea of boasting just supports our sense of self-importance and pride. Haman doesn't have humility. It's just quite the contrary. It's everything but the attitude God would desire for a person to have. And finally, he has a position, right? He's been elevated above the nobles. He certainly has a certain access to the king that other people just don't have. And Haman uses that access and that position for destructive and selfish ends. And if you are to compare Haman with Esther, you'd see that in the way that they, they work within the position that where they had been placed, they use those positions so drastically differently. Haman's, he uses his position for selfish ends and destruction. Esther, even at the possibility of her own death, uses her position. We're going to talk about this next week. She uses her position before the king in order to bring life and health and to help encourage others. Haman is kind of like, if you've read the stories, The Lord of the Rings, or seen the movies, you might remember the king of Rohan, has been, his mind has been poisoned because there's an advisor sitting beside him who keeps whispering poison into his ear. And it begins over time to cloud his perception of the people. He begins to call what is evil good and what is good evil. He gets everything mixed up. And Worm Tongue's role in the whole story is one of uh, presenting evil and destruction to the king. And, and it's when um, Strider walks in and uh, Gandalf arrives and uh, they, they break the power of Worm Tongue over the king of Rohan. And suddenly, boom, his eyes change. His ability to stand up changes. His engagement as a leader is stronger and enhanced. And he becomes the king that the people need, that the world needed to fight off all of the evil that was to come. It's a recurring villainous voice that Haman speaks into the ear of the king. It sounds reasonable at first. From a certain vantage point, yeah, king, these Jewish people, they're not following the laws like everybody else is. They're... They're going to drag the society down, so you're better off just to exterminate them. And King Xerxes was all too happy to follow his orders. But you see, what Haman's perspective does is it entirely distorts and it corrupts and it destroys what is true from a fuller, broader, God-giving perspective. Those are three of the signs that are right on the surface. There's a couple that are right under the surface. One is his discontentment. It's as if Haman says, no matter how many people praise me, 
Because this one man, Mordecai, doesn't. I'm not going to be content. And it doesn't matter. I have all of this wealth. This Mordecai is a thorn in my side. Because I don't hear his hands slapping together in applause. He never has enough. You know, modern advertising is, is so interesting and amazing to me. Because we know that modern advertising... Have you ever heard an ad say something like, Hey, if you need some laundry detergent, why don't you go down to the store and buy some laundry detergent? That would be an ad that speaks to our actual need. Right? I have a need. I can go to the store. I can buy some detergent. But what do most ads do, whether on the radio or in print, in a magazine, or on TV? What most advertisers know is that if you can dig into the psyche of people and you can begin to tell them and show them how good something is, maybe something they've never even heard of before, all of a sudden they see how this might benefit their life. And suddenly, before you ever encountered the ad, you didn't even know this product existed. You had no desire for it or longing for it. But this ad or a series of ads comes before you. And all of a sudden, this thing you never even knew existed has suddenly become something you need. Not just want, but you need it. Because your contentment is hinged on it. Your fulfillment rests in it. Right? You can't be happy unless you get this thing. That, that's almost the, the psychological underpinnings of advertising. And uh, it's helpful, I suppose, in some ways because it introduces us to uh, some things that maybe we actually do need and aren't aware that, that they're out there. Uh, maybe medicines and things. So if you're in advertising, forgive me, I'm not, I'm not down on, on your work or anything, but uh, that is the approach to advertising. Sometimes we get caught up in comparing our lives to others, right? We see the achievements of somebody else. Somebody has advanced in their, their work or at their school place. They've uh, done their exams better, and, and I begin to compare myself, and I don't quite measure up to their level of success. And boy, I can begin to feel quite uh, intimidated and inadequate. I love what uh, British pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this idea of discontent. He says, have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I'll say it again. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself? I need this. I want that. I crave this. I can't be happy unless I get this or until I secure this instead of talking to yourself. In the Psalms 103, verse 2, the psalmist writes this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who is the psalmist talking to? Himself. Self, remember the goodness of God. Self, remember that you're only satisfied fully and completely in God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. That's, that's the type of godly self-talk. Rather than listening to the things that uh, can well up within us that aren't always godly or lead to godly ends, we need to practice more self-talk but allowing God in it to speak to us. So one of the things under the surface for Haman was his discontentment. And the second and final one was his rage. We see it twice in the story that he was enraged. This word rage is the same word used in describing the way King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon 
in the way, you remember the story maybe of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Um, they had been taken as captives, led off to the Babylonian kingdom before the Persian kingdom came on the scene. Nebuchadnezzar had built a golden statue of himself and said, every time around the city you hear the trumpet blast, you need to stop what you're doing and you need to turn your face toward the statue and you need to bow down and pay it honor. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't going to do that. And when that was reported to King Nebuchadnezzar, do you think he was happy about it? <laughs> no. Uses the same word that he was enraged that they would, they would think as captives in his land that they could defy. They could defy the king. And so he says, don't you guys know what I can do to you? Don't you know I have a furnace that I can, I can fire up any, any given day and I can throw anybody I want into it? That's what's going to happen to you. You want to hear something really gross? Years ago... Uh, Greeks, uh, archaeologists have uncovered and stories have told us that uh, certain Greek areas, that they, they were able to punish people quite well. In fact, one of their more grotesque forms of punishment, if you don't want to hear it, close your ears, it won't be bloody, but it's really painful sounding. They, they actually would build a hollowed out molten cow or steer and they would have a a, in its mouth area, there would be kind of a trumpet leading from the inside, so it's hollowed out inside. There would be a trumpet, or a, like a, a megaphone going to the mouth. And they would put people inside this that were enemies of theirs. And they would light a fire under it. And as the people burned to death inside, that megaphone would push out their sound. I mean, these are serious forms of craziness. Nebuchadnezzar comes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, don't you guys know what I can do? And they say, we don't care. We're not going to bow down because we're going to honor God. And he says, fire up the furnace. He says, don't just fire it up normal. Put it up as high as it can go. And the men escorting them, they, they bind their hands and they take them to the furnace door. And the furnace is so hot when they push them in the, the Babylonians accompanying them, they themselves get consumed and die. They come back a little bit later and um, they are coming to put the fire down and to pull out what's left of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they look in and they don't see three people still alive and standing and walking around. They see four. And they describe it as the angel of God had come and encountered them in that moment. And you know before they were thrown in the furnace, what is so great about their response. They said, you know what? King, you can throw us in the fire. That's okay. You know, we, we, we know that God, if He wants to, He can save us. But even if He doesn't, even if God doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down. We're going to honor our God to the end. This is the same word that describes Haman's rage and what fueled his desire not just to kill Mordecai, but to kill all of the Jews. And here's the turn of the story. One night in chapter 6, King Xerxes goes out where he can't sleep. And this a book, he says, bring, bring me something to read. And uh, a scroll is brought to him and it happens to be the account of when Mordecai had blown the whistle and warned uh, Xerxes that he was about to be assassinated and the attempt was foiled. So Xerxes, late one night, he reads this and he says, what's ever been done to honor Mordecai for this great service to me? Nothing, king. Mordecai, you haven't done anything. He says, well, that ought to change. So the very next morning, right, Haman had gone out that same night 
And he had talked to his, his wife and his, his buddies there, and they began to build the gallows. And that morning, Haman showed up at Xerxes' door, and he was going to ask for Mordecai to be killed and executed on the gallows that he had built. And so Mordecai, or Haman, knocks on the door. Hey, king! king says, come in, Haman. Hey, i got a question for you. What should the king do for the man he's really interested in honoring? Who do you think Haman's thinking about? Who else would the king want to honor than good old Haman? So, he lists out this long list of things. Well, you should put him on a horse that the king has ridden and give him special clothing. And somebody should take the reins of that horse and walk down the city streets saying, this is what is done to the man the king is happy to honor. And people will bow down and they'll applaud the person on the horse. So Haman thinks, all right, it's about to get real now, right? Mordecai's going to bow down to me now. And you know what Xerxes says, right? That's a great idea, Haman. Would you go and make that happen for Mordecai? In fact, don't just arrange it. I want you, Haman, to take the reins and I want you to pull the horse and guide it down the streets so that he can be honored and thanks for what he did. Here's our question today, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. Whose applause, whose applause are you seeking? The Apostle Paul to the Galatian church says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In his book titled The Applause of Heaven, Max Lucado says this, You'll be home soon, too. You may not have noticed it, but you are closer to home than ever before. Each moment is a step taken, each breath is a page turned, each day is a mile marked or a mountain climbed. You are closer to home than you've ever been. Before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp and enter the city. You'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his nail-pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. You honored me to the very end. Well done. You took that which I entrusted to you and you multiplied it. You worked faithfully with the gifts and all that I entrusted to you. Well done. Isn't that the applause we really want? The applause of heaven. God's pleasure in our life. Not the applause of other people. Not living our life so that other people praise us. But living our lives humbly Desiring God's applause only. You know, we face enemies that seek to wipe away God's work in our life and in a church like this. Enemies like discontentment or selfish ambition. Sometimes we put around us people who are kryptonic rather than spinach people. Do you know what I mean by that? Remember Superman's great weakening aspect was... Kryptonite. Kryptonite. Thank you, Chris. Sometimes we put around people who actually make us weaker rather than stronger. They suck life out of us rather than giving us life. They're kryptonic people rather than spinach. Remember Popeye? What did he eat that made him strong to the finish? Spinach. We need more spinach people in our lives that will encourage and strengthen us. We come to this table this morning 
and we focus on it as our strength and our salvation. We come to the Lord's Supper this morning to be reminded and to celebrate that we work with God for His purposes in the world. We come today with the humility that God Himself humbled Himself, scorning the shame of the cross so that He could do the work that He set out to do. So this morning we share this together. Would the deacons come and join me here in the front? We talk about elements of bread and a cup because they remind us of uh, aspects of the life of Jesus and His death that brings life for us. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And we know that Jesus' body, the reason that we look at bread is because it, it in some way helps us to conceptualize the fact that he, His body was broken and that He literally died so that He could absorb your sin into Himself. And what it takes for that absorption to happen is a simple confession to say, God, I agree with you that that my sin is ugly and it's destructive and it separates me from you, but I don't want to live that way. I want to be united with you and I want to be friends with you and I want you to cleanse me. And so we acknowledge bread and a cup today as great symbols for that act. And this morning, if you have opened your life to Jesus and you've confessed your sin and you've welcomed Him into your life seeking His purity and His cleansing, then then this meal is open for you. If that's not something that you can say confidently that you have done, then uh, I'd encourage you just to let the plates pass you by. That's okay. Nobody's looking. Nobody's going to embarrass you or point you out. But if that does describe you as one who is not confident today that you've really confessed your sin and have stepped into a real and a personal relationship with the living God, then I would love for you this week or even this morning to come and let us know that because uh, there's nothing that we would like more than to begin a conversation with you about what that means. On the night that He was betrayed, Jesus took bread and He broke it. And He blessed it and He handed it out. And He said, this is my body broken for you. Living God, we thank You that You would come leaving the wonders of heaven behind and for a time living here among us so that You might do the work that we needed You to do on the cross. And in Your faithfulness and in Your humility, You opened the doorway to life forever with You. Today we want to remember that and to celebrate it and to thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. On the same night... A cup was filled, and it was passed around and shared as a reminder that the life of Jesus poured out so that life, for those who'd receive Him, would flood in and fill their living. We remember a cup because it's a picture of unity, and that together, the original disciples and us too claim our unified view and forward movement because of what Jesus has done. So let's pray together. Living God, we thank You for this cup. We, we pray this morning if there are any aspects of our life that we've discussed, things like selfish ambition or discontentment that's deeply rooted or the group of friends that we continually place around us that we know are not a healthy influence or whatever it might be today, factors that might undermine the work that You desire to do in us or in this church. We pray, God, that You would... 
you would give us the insight to work on those, to allow you to work on those, to touch them, and that you might make them different and new, we pray. In Jesus' name together, amen.